Hey everybody, welcome back to the Curiosity Chronicles. Another big episode. I'm actually doing one episode, so to speak, but breaking it into a part A and a part B. I didn't want to release it all as one big chunk because it would be a huge episode. But in essence, this episode and the next episode, part B, are all one episode. And so, a lot of information. I really kind of dove deep into this one, especially when you get to the Battle of the Little Bighorn. I went into a lot of detail. I was very interested and I couldn't really turn away. And I think to do it justice, you really need to make sure you dive into all the details so you can understand it. I still feel like I could have understood it better. I could have done a better job maybe of painting a picture in terms of the geography, but, you know, it is what it is, unfortunately. But we're going to start quite a few years before the Battle of the Little Bighorn. So we're going to talk about Custer and Crazy Horse post-Civil War leading up to 1876. So we're going to dive right in. My name is Brett Bilesma. I am the host of the Curiosity Chronicles. And this is what I was curious about this month. So roughly around the time of the Civil War, shortly after after the Civil War, there's some things that I need to just very briefly touch on, but I'm not going to go into detail into them just because not enough time. And there's been some battles and skirmish, skirmishes and some massacres, unfortunately, for a few years. I talked about some of it in the last episode. One that didn't get a lot of time in the podcast was Sand Creek. I don't even know if I mentioned it at all. Soldiers had killed and mutilated roughly 150 Cheyenne, and two-thirds of those were women and children, so obviously not much of a battle, more of a massacre. And Crazy Horse had joined the retaliatory war party, but he was on his own. He wasn't part of an Ogallala war party. And they raided, killed, and looted white settlements, but it wasn't large-scale battles. This is just kind of isolated incidents. Now, in the summer of 1865, there was an organized group of American Indians, mostly Oglala and Cheyenne, with some other Sioux and a smattering of others, that began an offensive against the whites. They attacked Fort Casper, which is in Wyoming, and it wasn't very effective because most of the soldiers knew if they didn't leave the fort, they weren't in much danger. So the Sioux and the Cheyenne killed a few soldiers on a wagon train, you know, here and there outside the fort, and then they went home. Now... That's how they did battle. Hit and run kind of thing, and then call it a day. Little did they know that while they were bringing the war to the whites, the white soldiers were planning their own expedition. Now, a little bit about Crazy Horse at this part of his life. It's about 1865. Crazy Horse is an Ogallala leader. Of course, we talked about how he was a shirt wearer at this point. And he was in cahoots with Red Cloud. Red Cloud is what the Sioux would call a big man. He was a leader. And at the same time, in 1865-1866, the soldiers, the white soldiers, the Americans, and the American Indian were preparing for a struggle. They knew that a struggle was going to happen. Now, the main goal of the Sioux at this point was to keep 
the white man out of the Powder River area in Montana. The area that they have overtaken, they want to keep it their own. Now, Red Cloud, who's an Oglala Sioux, he's given overall command of the campaign. And Crazy Horse, of course, was one of his field commanders. Now, the United States, and when I say the United States, I mean the white eastern United States and the American soldiers, the U.S. Army, were sick of war. This is just the year after the Civil War. So much death and killing. They're exhausted. The North, however, now that the Civil War has ended and that the Union was reunited, wanted to, to expand. They wanted to achieve the manifest destiny. That meant pushing west, setting up railroads. That meant getting rid of the American Indians who were on the land that they wanted. And government officials wanted to try a peaceful solution, but they tried to buy off the tribes. But they offered so little that it wouldn't have been enough for even a single... If they split it up in for the whole tribe, it would be not even enough for one American Indian person to live on for a year. I mean, it was just a, it was a paltry amount. So, of course, they were turned down. And government officials just didn't understand how American Indian, especially Plains tribes, worked. They weren't going to be able to buy them off for a small fee. Now, there really was no need for them because this was a time, for the moment, of peace. But the United States Army started to build forts in territory controlled by the Sioux. Now, this could have been a deliberate attempt by Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman to provoke the Sioux, get them to come out on the war campaign, beat them in the battle, and just end the American Indian problem in the West. Just be done with it. One big battle, and it's over. However, the U.S. Army, at this point, after the Civil War, was not the professional, well-trained army that had just won against the South. They were demobilized, so the numbers of soldiers was quite low, comparatively. They were depleted. It wasn't a well-supplied, well-trained army, and they were just tired. Nobody wanted to fight. Not only that, like happens consistently in this story, the U.S. Army vastly, vastly underestimated their opponent. So in the summer of 1866, Colonel Henry B. Carrington and a small detachment of men built what is now known as Fort Phil Kearney in the foothills of the Bighorn Mountains in Wyoming. Now, Fort Phil Kearney is different than Fort Kearney in Kansas, which is on the Oregon Trail. The real Oregon Trail and also the video game. So don't get confused, because I got confused. I was not at all able to rationalize this in my brain when I thought it was the same fort, because Montana, excuse me, Fort Kearney is in Nebraska, not, not Kansas. But Fort Phil Kearney in Montana, that's the setting for this story, which is one of the worst defeats in the history of the U.S. Army in terms of embarrassment, I guess. Not necessarily in terms of casualties. So, the main players in this 
Fort Phil Kearney battle is Carrington, who we just talked about, and Captain William Fetterman. On the other side, it's Crazy Horse and Red Cloud of the Sioux. Now, Crazy Horse, again, he was the leader in battle. Red Cloud was not a battle leader. He was an organizing genius and a politician. He made things work. He gathered alliances. He organized the battle plan. He put it into action, but he was not actually leading into battle. Now, Captain Fetterman was in his mid-20s. He was a veteran of the Civil War. He had a great combat record, but he was only a captain. He was looking for advancement. And one way to gain advancement in the U.S. Army is to excel in battle. So he was looking for a fight. Unfortunately, Fetterman knew basically nothing about the Sioux, which is different from Crazy Horse, because Crazy Horse actually did have a pretty good understanding of the white man. It gave him a large tactical advantage. Red Cloud and Crazy Horse believed that this upcoming battle, they believed this was obviously an incorrect assumption by them, they believed that this would be the final battle for the Powder River Basin, and if they were defeated, the very existence of the Sioux Nation was at stake. So they gathered a large alliance. Red Cloud got an alliance together of Ogallala, Minikanju, Hunkpapa, Sansarks, Brule Sioux, and some Arapaho and Cheyenne. It was a large, large alliance. So Fort Phil Kearney was built to protect travelers that were on the Bozeman Trail. The Bozeman Trail connected the Oregon Trail to the northern area in Montana by the Powder River. Obviously, as has been discussed, this is Sioux territory. Sioux had begun attacking travelers on the Bozeman Trail. From August to December of 1866, the Sioux had killed 154 soldiers and travelers, wounded 20, and captured 700 horses and other cattle. Now, by the spring of 1867, these attacks had basically brung travel on the Bozeman Trail to a standstill. This was unacceptable to the U.S., Crazy Horse was active nearly every day. He was attacking wagon trains, going even as far away as Fort Laramie in Wyoming. And the Sioux were coordinated. They would use smoke signals and mirror flashes to coordinate attacks. And they were crafty, especially in terms of escaping, because the soldiers that would pursue them rarely were able to track them down. The Sioux obviously knew the land much better and had more... Stamina, especially in terms of their ponies. Their ponies were able to go a much longer distance than the cavalry soldiers' horses. So, advantage to the Sioux. Now, back in Washington, D.C., officials were convinced that the American Indians were peaceful. And they had a bogus treaty in place. And because of this perceived notion that there was no hostilities, they refused to send Carrington the supplies that he and his men were begging for at Fort Phil Kearney. Once again, advantage to the Sioux. The Sioux were well supplied. The U.S. soldiers were not. It was not looking good for Fort Phil Kearney, but they did have a fort. They were not going to be in danger as long as they stayed inside the fort. But Red Cloud in December of 1866 wanted to eliminate Fort Phil Kearney. But how were they going to go about doing this? 
the only way that they could go about doing this was to make sure that they got a large contingent out into the open, out of the fort, so that they could rain arrows down onto them. Again, the Sioux at this point do not have very many firearms. Or beat them in hand-to-hand combat. They could achieve a massive victory and basically eliminate Fort Phil Kearney and then go back to raiding along the Bozeman Trail. The weakness of Fort Phil Kearney is that they needed wood for their fires for cooking and everything like that, which means they had to send out woodcutters to the tree line to gather that wood and bring it back. When the woodcutters were out of the fort, obviously they were vulnerable. So soldiers were then sent along to protect them. That was going to be how Red Cloud and Crazy Horse were going to eliminate the soldiers. This was the Achilles heel. The shirt wearers, along with Crazy Horse, started planning a decoy party. So on December 6th, Red Cloud, Crazy Horse, and about 300 warriors were on what's called the Lodge Trail Ridge. It's to the northwest of Fort Phil Kearney. And they waited and watched as the woodcutters came out of the fort with some soldiers. And they sent about 100 warriors to attack the woodcutters and waited to see how Carrington would react. Carrington sent Fetterman and about 400 cavalrymen to attack the decoys. The decoys being the 100 warriors that had gone down to attack the woodcutters. This is what was supposed to happen. This is what Crazy Horse and Red Cloud were waiting for. Now they had 40 cavalrymen out in the open that they could hopefully ambush. Unfortunately, the decoys turned and started to attack Fetterman instead of leading Fetterman into the ambush. And the warriors that were with Crazy Horse broke ranks early and spoiled the surprise. So there's some hand-to-hand fighting, but Fetterman and his men retreated and... There was minimal losses on each side. About two men killed and seven or so wounded on each side. Now, Carrington was the one that ordered the retreat. Fetterman was livid. He actually accused Carrington of cowardice for ordering him to retreat back to the fort. On the other side, Crazy Horse was also extremely angry with his... his A bit of a lisp there is also very angry with his warriors for breaking ranks early, spoiling the ambush. So Crazy Horse told his men that if they wanted this to work, they had to work together. Now, on the flip side of this, Red Cloud was actually pretty happy with how things had gone, even though they didn't achieve the massive victory that they're hoping, because it showed that this decoy plan could work. So he decided he was going to try again. He was going to try again with a larger force, quote, on the first auspicious day after the full moon. So December 19, Red Cloud attempted an ambush. Carrington did not allow his men to pursue. So ambush never happened. December 20, snowed. The Sioux stayed in their camp. No chance of having a battle. And then came December 21. Warriors deployed to each side of the Pano Valley. Now, Hump was there with Crazy Horse, his best friend that we talked about last episode. Hump gave strict orders to the warriors that they were not to attack until they got the signals from the decoys. 
The decoys were the Sioux shirtwearers. They were men named American Horse, Young Man Afraid, He Dog, and Crazy Horse. And not a shirt wearer, but also a decoy was Hump, Lone Bear, and two Arapaho, and two Cheyenne. So it was a small decoy party. And they were hoping that the small party would be able to draw out a large force. So Carrington had to send out the woodcutters again. And there were 79 men, cavalry and infantry, ready to support them. Carrington originally had put a more cautious officer in charge. But Fetterman, being the second in command, demanded the honor, so to speak, of leading the 79 men. And Carrington gave it to him. Knowing that Fetterman is a hothead and itching for battle, he gave him very specific instructions. He repeated them more than once. Quote, Support the wood train, relieve it, and report to me. Do not engage or pursue Indians at its expense. Under no circumstances pursue over the ridge that is Lodge Trail Ridge. End quote. So the woodcutters came out, Crazy Horse leads out the decoys as soon as Fetterman left the fort. Carrington had a field artillery piece. He fired from the fort. He knocked one of the decoys down, but the rest began acting like they were terrified. It was all a big show, but the U.S. soldiers ate it up. Simultaneously, Red Cloud had the Sioux that were attacking the wood train retreat. So the decoys are acting terrified. The, sol- the, the, the warriors that are attacking the woodcutters are retreating. It looks like this could be the makings of a great victory for the U.S. So Fetterman is confused. He's not sure what to do. Should I go after them? Should I follow my orders? What do I do? Remember, he's only in his mid-20s. So Crazy Horse decides he's going to make the decision for him. He alone charges the 80 soldiers. There was a man named Captain Brown who joined the 79 men at the last minute. So total amount is 80. Crazy Horse charges straight at them by himself. Fetterman decided he's going to disobey Carrington's orders. He starts chasing after Crazy Horse. Crazy Horse's performance was Oscar-worthy at this point. The U.S. Army knew that the Sioux liked to use decoy parties, and they had gotten wise to the fact of not chasing after a party of Sioux that could potentially lead them into the ambush. But Crazy Horse was so convincing that for once, the soldiers under Fetterman thought, this is the real real deal. We are not looking at a decoy. This is a terrified Sioux that we are going to catch and kill. So they gave chase. They go up an area called Sullivan Hills, and they are going onto Lodge Trail Ridge, exactly where Carrington told them not to go and exactly where Crazy Horse was hoping they would go. Now, the decoys had to play this very... They were on, they were on a razor edge because they wanted to make sure they stayed out of range of the guns of the cavalrymen, but they also couldn't get so far ahead that Fetterman would just give up and go back to the fort. So Crazy Horse especially had a few different tricks. At different times, he got off his horse and started lifting up a hoof, pretending that the horse was going lame. And he would even run on foot while awkwardly leading the horse by the reins. And, you know, wait until the soldiers got just close enough to maybe start being dangerous, and then jump on the horse and take off again. Another time... Crazy Horse decided that the distance was getting too large, so he literally got down off his horse, 
built a small fire and sat down next to the fire. And when the other decoys motioned for him to keep coming, come on, come on, come on, he waved them off, seeming to indicate that he was giving up. His horse had gone up lame and they should leave without him and he was just going to give himself up to the white soldiers. He sat there until bullets began, began kicking up puffs of dirt around him and they were flying over his head. The other decoys took off running. They figured, screw it. Crazy Horse is on his own. At the last second, Crazy Horse again jumps on his horse, takes off. Fetterman and his men went over Lodge Ridge Trail and into the Pinot Valley. The plan is working perfectly. As soon as they went into that valley, Crazy Horse and the other decoys signaled the hidden warriors. And roughly about 2,000 Sioux, Cheyenne, Arapaho charged into Fetterman's command. So it's 2,000 on 80, roughly. And Fetterman and his men did not have a chance because they were getting attacked from front, the rear, and both flanks. They were surrounded. And most of the warriors were coming up on the rear of Fetterman's column, cutting off his retreat. They tried to go right up a slope of a hill, but the snow and ice made it slippery. The arrows were flying. And when I mean the arrows were coming thick, they were coming in incredible numbers. In 40 minutes of the battle, the 2,000 warriors roughly shot 40,000 arrows. 40,000 arrows at 80 men. Your chances of not getting hit are basically zero. But then Fetterman made a major mistake. He let his cavalry break away from the infantry. The cavalry led their horses up the hill while the infantry was left to fend for themselves and attempted to find cover behind rocks and boulders. In about 20 minutes, the infantry was completely slaughtered. Not one of them had a chance. During the battle, as is common, no one was really in charge for the American Indians. It was everyone for themselves. In most of the casualties on the American Indian side, because they had surrounded Fetterman, were self-inflicted. It was friendly fire. The Cheyenne and Arapaho were shooting and hitting Ogallala, Minikanju, and vice versa. It was a total cluster. But, obviously, they were destroying Fetterman's column. Once the infantry was dealt with, they had to deal with the cavalry that had gone up the slope of the hill. So they began crawling up the hill, chasing down the cavalrymen. The cavalry let their horses loose. They were hoping that if they let their horses loose, maybe the Sioux and the Cheyenne and the others would go after the horses, trying to steal them and leave the men alone. But no good. The, the warriors had one goal in mind. They eventually got close enough to the cavalry where they could charge, and they clubbed to death anyone that was still alive. Captain Brown and Captain Fetterman, who I didn't mention, but as I'm sure you can imagine, while in the fort were bragging about how they could whip any American Indian tribe with just a few men, were potentially the last two men alive, and at the last minute they put their pistols to each other's temple, counted to three, and fired, killing each other in a suicide pact. Battle was over fairly quickly. All of the men were killed on the American soldier side, 10 Sioux, 2 Cheyenne, and 1 Arapaho were dead, and most of those were from friendly fire, like I mentioned. And of the 80 or 81 soldiers, 80, 80, sorry. Of the 80 soldiers, 77 were killed by arrows. Because again, 
so you don't have that many guns. So arrows are effective too. The American Indians began celebrating. They were dancing. They started taking scalps, stripping, mutilating the bodies. If you are a bit squeamish, this would be the time to plug your ears. Carrington later, when he found the scene, described it as this. Quote, Eyes torn out and laid on rocks. Noses cut off. Ears cut off. Chins hewn off. Teeth chopped out. Joints of fingers. Brains taken out and placed on rocks. Entrails taken out and exposed. Hands cut off. Feet cut off. Arms taken out from sockets. Private parts severed and indecently placed on the person. Eyes, ears, mouth, and arms penetrated with spearheads, sticks, and arrows. Ribs slashed to separation with knives. Skulls severed in every form from chin to crown. Muscles of calves, thighs, stomach, breast, back, arms, and cheek taken out. Punctures upon every sensitive part of the body, even to the soles of the feet and the palms of the hand. End quote. That is from D. Brown quoted in Stephen Ambrose's book that I have quoted in the sources. The American Indians, and I'm not saying that this was anything that I approve of, of course, but this was basically years of rage and frustration being poured out and showcased in the mutilations. It is, like I said, atrocities occurring on either side in this war. It should be pointed out that although I do not condone this, the American soldiers, when they win in a battle against the American Indians, were also known to mutilate and desecrate bodies. There is no good guy in this war. It is all shades of gray. It is unknown if Crazy Horse participated in the butchery. There's no eyewitness accounts. For sure he was excited. This was a great victory for the Sioux. And it was something that Crazy Horse and Red Cloud had been working for for a long time. But it would seem based on an account from a white scout named Frank Groard, it's hard to pronounce his last name, that the excitement of the battle for Crazy Horse was somewhat tempered by tragedy for him. Frank, last name unpronounceable, claimed that Crazy Horse and Hump had left right after the battle. As soon as the battle was ended, they took off because they were looking for Lone Bear. Lone Bear was a down on his luck, very good friend of Hump and Crazy Horse. It seemed like he was always getting injured somehow in a weird way. And unfortunately, in this battle, his injuries were too much for him to recover from. He was found by Crazy Horse and Hump, seriously wounded. He was trying to crawl away from where he was cut down, but he couldn't. He was wounded too badly. His blood had actually frozen on the ground by the time that they found him. And... According to Frank, he died in Crazy Horse's arms while Hump stood by weeping, which sounds overly romanticized and dramatic, but it more than likely is a true story. It, it should not be discounted just because it sounds overly romanticized. So more than likely, no butchery on Crazy Horse's part, but I don't want you to believe that that's because he was just more noble than the U.S. soldiers or the American Indians that had participated in butchery. He was, unfortunately, at this point, 
mourning the loss of a good friend. Now, in the aftermath of this, General Sherman hears about the Fetterman Massacre, as it becomes known, or also the Battle of Fort Phil Kearney, and he says, quote, We must act with vindictive earnestness against the Sioux, even to their extermination, men, women, and children, end quote. Yeah, General Sherman was, like, super racist against the American Indian, but he was also pissed that his army had just gotten humiliated, and he was following what we would consider to be the normal U.S. policy at that point, which is moving west at all costs. I try not to judge too harshly, because it's always a bad idea for a historian to judge the past based on 21st century morals. But yeah, there's never a time where you can exterminate women and children and call it a battle. I'm just going to say that. Now, there were other people that were trying to get the, quote, Red Devils out of the West. Their words, not mine. That was the railroad lobbyists. They wanted to go to Congress and get the army out West to get rid of the American Indians so that the railroad could start going through. They still wanted to make the Transcontinental Railroad happen. I just realized that I cannot say railroad very well. And then there were Western newspapers that were accusing the army of cowardice because they were not actively searching out and destroying the American Indian. And it was at this time, in the aftermath of the Fetterman Massacre, that in 1867, the now Colonel, Brevet Major General, I believe, if I remember correctly, George Armstrong Custer was given his first command on the Great Plains. Custer came to the Great Plains with his wife Libby, and... They took to it with joy and wonder. And they became, I mean, they, they rode horses all the time. Custer became a prolific hunter. They were living the life that Custer had dreamed of for quite some time. As we talked about in the Custer episode, he was at his best, so to speak, maybe his happiest during war. He thrived during the Civil War, and post-war life had not been as good of a time for Custer. He was getting commands that he did not enjoy. He had mutinous soldiers under his command. He was reduced in rank because he had his brevet rank during the Civil War, and then, which is, which is basically an honorary title. He was a general, and then after the war, he was back to his normal, quote-unquote, rank, which I should know but uh, it is escaping me at the moment. I think it's Lieutenant Colonel, if I remember right. So for most of this episode, he was Lieutenant Colonel, but he always went by General Custer because that was the highest honorary rank that he had attained at one point. Now, Sheridan, Philip Sheridan, General uh, from the Civil War and a high-ranking general in the U.S. Army as a whole post-Civil War, had argued and recommended that Custer keep his two-star general rank, but for good reason, Republicans in the Congress were wary of officers in the Army that were pro-South, and in January 1866, Custer's volunteer commission expired and he reverted back to his normal U.S. Army rank. At this point, in 1866, it was captain, and eventually uh, he was promoted, I believe. I hope I'm right on that. Jeez, this is embarrassing. Either way, it doesn't matter. He's Custer. He's in command. 
Now, after the Civil War, Custer also had zero savings. He was not good with money. And because he was no longer a two-star, his salary was reduced substantially. And he needed to sell many of his horses and his dogs, which he loved, to make ends meet. One thing that Custer did have, though, he had lots of friends. He was poor in cash, rich in friends. And he had a great reputation. So he had options, for sure. Avenues opened up to him that wouldn't open up to your average person. He was offered business deals, political offices, ambassadorships. Yeah, Custer as an ambassador, that would be something to see. Republicans wanted him on his side because he was pro-union. He fought for the Union Army and succeeded. Democrats wanted him on their side. And the whole post-war political scene was just a nasty, gnarly mess. Custer was in the thick of it. He could talk politics. But in the end, he didn't really have any desire to work in politics. He was not someone to sit in an office. When he was offered the different political posts, he would, yeah, I'll get back to you on that. I'll I'll give you a decision at some point. He put it off. And it just always came down to he was an army man. That was what he was built to do. Eventually, through spending some time in D.C., Custer was able to get a good look at what he called, quote, typical politics, and he was disgusted by it. Just like your average person with politics. And he decided it was time to get out of Washington for good. He wasn't going to deal with any of that. So in 1867, Custer joined up with his regiment, the 7th Cavalry, in Kansas. Now, to get an idea of how Custer traveled, I mean, the guy was flamboyant, I guess is the word you want to say. And he lived life to the fullest. So when he went out to Kansas, he took with him his wife, Libby, Eliza, a black jockey who raced his horses, four of his favorite horses, Byron, his greyhound, and Turk, his bulldog, and several hunting hounds. The dude did not travel light. And he got to Fort Riley in Kansas where his regiment was based, and this is where he heard about the Fetterman Massacre at Fort Phil Kearney. Now, Custer was looking forward to a large campaign against the American Indians in the spring. The U.S. government had decided that they couldn't get to the Sioux in the Powder River, but maybe they could go after some of the tribes in Nebraska and Kansas. Sheridan, Sherman, and the U.S. Army were determined that somebody was going to pay for the Fetterman Massacre, and it didn't matter who, just as long as they were American Indians. Even if the tribes were totally unrelated, someone was going to pay. So the winter of 1866-67, it was a brutal winter for the Sioux, and really anybody on the plains at that point. It was bitterly cold, lots of snow. A lot of the buffalo and other game had left the Powder River area, and that meant the Sioux had trouble finding food. The buffalo was their main source of everything, basically. Crazy Horse had spent much of the winter hunting. He was and would be until the day he died, the Ogallala's best hunter. At one point, he and his companion, Little Hawk, trapped eight elk in the snowdrifts, and they killed them with knives. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't shoot them with arrows. No, they they crept up on them, trapped in the snowdrifts, and slit their throats. Which is really something. Now, the army that Red Cloud had gathered that had beaten down Fetterman and his men 
had dissipated. That's just kind of how things went with these alliances among the tribes. Most of the Southern Cheyenne went back to Kansas. Some of the Ogallalas went with the Cheyenne. They were thinking they wanted to go to a peaceful area. Kansas was supposed to be an area where there was no hostilities. But Custer and General Sherman were about to disabuse them of that notion. Sherman had originally wanted to go into the Powder River area and go after the Sioux who had taken down Fetterman, but the government wanted to send a peace commission, so you couldn't send a peace commission and an army at the same time. So Sherman calls off the Powder River offensive and decides that he is going to send troops to the Central Plains, Nebraska and Kansas. Like I said, someone's going to get payback and pay for Fetterman's massacre. Doesn't matter who. But also they could use the ruse of protecting the railroad as a way to get into a battle with the American Indians. So, Sherman sends Major General Winfield Scott Hancock to clear out the American Indians in Kansas and Nebraska. And Custer would be there leading the way. He's not in charge, but he's going to be at the forefront in the vanguard. Hancock and Custer both did not understand the tribes that are in Nebraska and Kansas. Once again. And both of them, although respected and having a fairly sterling battle record, had exaggerated ideas of their own abilities. The U.S. often... The U.S. often... I'm reading ahead in my notes. The U.S. Army is often portrayed as blundering the wars against the Plains Indians. They're starting wars and botching it, but that's not really the full story. When... Hancock is going out to clear out the tribes in Kansas and Nebraska. He may look foolish, but in the background, there's a lot of politics that is playing a part. The army barely knew what the week-to-week policy would be in terms of how they would treat the tribes. The U.S. government was constantly flip-flopping. They were getting conflicting orders. They were getting poor equipment. They were undersupplied. The army was not trained. They were getting new recruits that had no idea what they were doing. So, did they blunder things at times? Yes. Were they as incompetent as is sometimes portrayed? No. So, Hancock sets off for Pawnee Fork, where there was a Cheyenne village. The Cheyenne were one of the famous Cheyenne warriors there, and one of the leaders of this particular tribe was a man named Roman Nose. And him and some of the Cheyenne come out and meet with Hancock and Custer, they're trying to keep the peace. Now, they discuss, they don't come to any type of resolution. After dark, Hancock orders Custer's 7th Cavalry to surround the village. Wants to prevent any escape, and hopefully they can have a victory if it comes to battle. So, Custer sends his men around, and then he sneaks in close to the village, and that's when he realizes that Cheyenne have actually deserted the village and taken off running before Custer could get in position. And he's very embarrassed by this. So he goes back to Hancock and tells him the news, and Hancock says, quote, This looks like the commencement of war, end quote. Now, Custer disagreed with that, mostly because he had a better understanding at this point of the American Indian than Hancock did. And he had a better understanding because he had spent most of this expedition with Wild Bill Hickok who had joined on as a scout. So Custer pumped him for information and was starting to begin to understand better than the officers, the opponent that they were up against. So 
Hancock orders Custer and the Seventh to track down the Cheyenne that were fleeing. Now, this is a great story. I've mentioned before, or maybe you've noticed just in listening to the stories, that Custer was an extraordinarily impulsive person. <laughs> and this story is 100% impulsiveness at its best. So Custer is going after the Cheyenne, tracking him down, and during the march, he sees an antelope in the distance. And he wants to see if his greyhounds are as fast as an antelope. So he takes off running after the antelope. Leaves his men behind. Just takes off. His men don't have any clue where he's going. So the dogs do not catch up with the antelope. But they've run far enough now that Custer is lost. The plains are very deceptive in terms of their geography and in judging distance and being able to see over the next bluff and things like that. So Custer turns around and all of a sudden he realizes... I can't see my men, and I don't know where I am. So he's waiting for the dogs to kind of lead him back to the column, but of course they're just kind of lolling around, lazing, not taking him back where he needs to go. And that's when Custer saw a buffalo. It's the first buffalo he has ever seen, and he is overjoyed. So he takes off after it. Screw being lost. Now he's got another project. So he races his horse alongside the buffalo, and he's just chasing it, chasing it, chasing it, chasing it. He's right up next to it. And more than once, he takes out his pistol and he puts the barrel against the buffalo's head as he's galloping. He's a skilled horseman. But then stops. He doesn't pull the trigger, in his words, because he wants to prolong the joy of the chase. But eventually, after a decent amount of time, his horse begins to tire out. Custer decides, I gotta end this. So he puts the pistol to the buffalo's head for the final time. And at that moment, the buffalo decides to turn into Custer's horse, which shies a little bit. Custer then is a little bit jostled and pulls the trigger of his pistol. But instead of shooting the buffalo, he instead shoots his horse directly through the head. <laughs> which, of course, immediately kills the horse. Custer is catapulted through the air as his horse dies right underneath him. And fortunately, he was able to disentangle himself from the stirrups, gets pitched over the head of the horse, hits the ground, and rolls to his feet, miraculously unhurt. But very, very lost. Again. So, he's miles away from his men, whom he basically deserted. He's lost, and he has no horse. And he's in what could be considered hostile territory. But, because he's Custer, and he has... The devil's own luck. After a few hours, his men found him wandering aimlessly with his dogs near the dead near the dead horse while the buffalo was nowhere to be seen. I imagine his men shared a good amount of jokes around the campfire that night about their commander shooting his own horse and getting lost, but those stories unfortunately seem to be lost to history. Custer never did find the Cheyenne. That took off from Pawnee Fork. But Hancock, who was angered by the Cheyenne's escape, burned the village. And this was not a small village. Based on the amount that Hancock burned in terms of especially teepees and things like that, it's estimated that 3,000 buffalo would have been needed to be hunted just to replace the teepees. And the cash value of everything that was lost in the burning was roughly $1 million in today's money. 
So it was a large blow to the Cheyenne. Now, the Cheyenne claimed that because this village was burned at Pawnee Fork, they went on the warpath. Because soon after this, Custer found stagecoach stations burned and station keepers killed. And there was obviously a retaliatory nature to what was happening. But it goes both ways, because Hancock claims that he burned the village because the Cheyenne started the war by killing the stagecoach keepers and, and burning the stagecoach station down. No one will know the truth. Who started what? One way or the other, people were getting killed and villages were getting burned, and it was a bad situation. But that was basically the end of Hancock's great expedition into Kansas and Nebraska. Custer made his way to Fort Hayes in Kansas. Hancock went back to where he was based in Fort Leavenworth, and that was the end of it. Now, after this, while Custer is at Fort Hayes, the Plains Indians are attacking mail, mail stations, stagecoaches, wagon trains, railroad workers. Kansas is in a state of terror. And Custer, much to his embarrassment and lack of supplies, was immobilized and his men were deserting in large numbers. It was not a good time to be Custer once again. Now, this is not all Custer's fault. It wasn't a leadership issue necessarily that was causing the desertions. Many of the men who joined up with the 7th Cavalry or other units used it as a free ticket to the West. They didn't necessarily have the means to get out West on their own. They joined up with the Army, got sent out West, and then once they got to Kansas, they took off for the gold rush areas of Montana and Colorado. That was their goal all along. Now, on the other side of this, the Army did not treat its men great. They were given terrible rations. Sometimes the rations that they were given were bread that was like five years old, which incidentally, if you like can bread, like you can can peaches or something like that, you can make it last for a long time. Doesn't mean it's appetizing. They were not given food that contained essential ingredients. So there were or essential ingredients or nutrients, I should say. So scurvy was common, which is just, not something that should be happening in 1865 on land where they could get food if they really tried hard. So it's no surprise that they're deserting, but it does not does not make Custer feel better that it's not necessarily his fault. Now, moving on to 1868. The war in the Powder River area basically become a stalemate. Red Cloud and Crazy Horse were never going to attack a fort directly, and the white Americans were not coming out to the Bozeman Trail, so there's not much happening. The army had basically abandoned the Bozeman Trail, and they took those men from the area of Montana to bolster the campaigns that they were uh, staging in Kansas. So the Powder River still belonged to the Sioux. Now, 1868 is when there was a treaty that Sherman authored that the white men, including Red Cloud, or the white men and the Sioux, including Red Cloud, signed. Now, this treaty basically had soldiers abandoning the forts in the Powder River area, and the U.S. agreed to not enter the Powder River area without Sioux permission. And on the flip side, the Sioux agreed to quote civilization, 
which meant that they would agree to farming and raising cattle after the buffalo ran out. And they would also send their children to school. This treaty did not hold water. This 1868 treaty was broken by both sides almost immediately. Within a week of Red Cloud signing the Fort Laramie Treaty, as it was called, General Sheridan and Custer led infantry and cavalry in a winter campaign against the Kansas and Oklahoma tribes. So maybe they weren't going to be coming into the Powder River area, but it was still going to be war against other tribes. November 23, 1868. There was a large winter storm, but Custer sent out his men on a winter campaign anyway. This was rare. They thought maybe if they come out in the winter, they can catch some of the Plains Indians unaware. They move out along with some Osage Indian scouts, and Custer led his men very competently despite the winter storm and the blinding snow. They move south. They're hoping to find the trail of some American Indians returning from their winter camp. So they're heading into Oklahoma trying to catch the trail of a tribe leaving Kansas, basically. On November... Nope, excuse me, going back. They are moving steadily from Kansas into Oklahoma. This is a weird area for the U.S. Army to be sending troops because historically speaking, the Oklahoma area is an area of peaceful settlement. It's non-threatening. But again, they had just signed a treaty, albeit a treaty that was mostly broken, with the Sioux in the Powder River area, so they can't go to Montana, Wyoming area. They have to go someplace else. On November 26, 1868, Custer finds a trail of an unknown tribe. They start to follow it. And eventually, the Osage scouts ahead of the column find the tribe. They report back to Custer. Custer divides his column into four detachments. His plan is at first light to signal an attack, and they would attack from four different directions simultaneously. Basically, surround the tribe, the village, and send the men in simultaneously. This was all happening at the Washita River in Oklahoma. If you know anything about the history of the American Indian Wars, that name means something to you. So at first light, Custer leads his column into the village at the same time as the other three columns, attacking from four different sides in a surprise attack that completely catches the Cheyenne, as they are later determined to be, off guard. And the soldiers were shooting into the teepees before the Cheyenne warriors were even aware that they were under attack. So it's a complete surprise attack. Now, a few of the warriors managed to take cover in the woods or in the banks of the river. But basically, from the very first attack, this battle was over, if you can even call it a battle. Now, troops later claimed that it was hard to determine warrior from squaw or young boy because the women and the children were taking weapons and fighting back. But, according to a man named George Grinnell, who got his information directly from the Cheyenne, quote, practically all the women and children who were killed were shot while hiding in the brush or trying to run through it, end quote. Which does not sound like they were taking up arms to fight. Battle was essentially over in less than an hour. I mean, it was quick and easy for Custer. Troopers found evidence in the teepees, so they say, that this tribe, which Custer later found out was the Cheyenne tribe led by Black Kettle, that they had been raiding in Kansas and they actually had two white prisoners with them who they killed before the battle started. So Custer could now claim he had found evidence that this tribe had been raiding and this was not a 
massacre. This was an attack on a enemy combatant, not an innocent tribe like had happened at Sand Creek. The Cheyenne that were killed were over 100. It was a devastating blow to the Cheyenne. Custer lost one officer killed and two officers and 11 enlisted men wounded. So it was a smashing victory for Custer, of course. Now, Custer learned that there were other tribes down the Washita River, and eventually warriors from those tribes learned what happened and came to fight Custer. Now, Custer decided for once that the smart move was to retreat and report to Sheridan that he had had a great victory. So he burned the village at the Washita and killed roughly 800 of the Indians' ponies. He couldn't take them with him. He didn't want to leave them for the other tribes, so he killed them. And they headed back to where they started, which they called Camp Supply in eastern Oklahoma. Now, Ambrose, in his book, calls this the Battle of the Washita River, as does history. But I and other historians prefer to give it another name, which is the Washita Massacre. And I think, like I've said, I try not to judge. I just try to give facts. But... I do like to make my opinion known. That's why I have a podcast. And even though there was atrocities on both sides, I do think that one of the largest black spots in American history is the killing of American Indian women and children. There is no place for that in my mind. I don't care what the policy was. I don't care about whether the policy was racist or not racist or whether it was about American destiny or anything like that. I don't care if it was American Indians or if it was Germans or Polish or anybody. There is no excuse for killing women and children and calling it war. And then as that came out of my mouth, I'm thinking about the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and things like that. And maybe I need to, oh, total war. Okay. Um, I didn't think this went through. But regardless, in a situation such as this, when there would have been ample time to give the women and children time to surrender, I think it is horrendous that they were just shot down where they slept. Especially the children. So... As much as I'm fascinated by Custer, and honestly, and I'll get to later on, just there's, there's times where I, I really like the guy. There's no excuse for this. It's a black mark on his record and a black mark on the American record. But anyway, I shouldn't maybe have gotten into that because then I just, I basically proved myself wrong as I was speaking. But sometimes I'm like Michael Scott. I just start saying things and don't really know where I'm going. Moving on. So, Custer gained a lot of prestige and accolades from his actions on the Washita, but there was also questions that arose from his superiors. Some, like myself, saw it as a massacre of innocents. Others questioned why Custer retreated. It appeared from the reports that Custer actually may have had the superior force, and if he had continued the battle, he could have even won a larger victory against the Downriver tribes. There was also an incident with Custer abandoning his men. Now, I didn't mention it in the battle report, so to speak, but during 
the Battle of the Washita River, Custer had sent Major Elliott and 19 men to chase down some of the Cheyenne that were running away. Custer did not link back up with them when he retreated, so he was accused of abandoning them, and they found out later that Major Elliott and all 19 of his men were eventually surrounded and killed. Weeks later, they were found naked, mutilated, and very dead, obviously. An anonymous letter appeared in a St. Louis newspaper saying Custer had abandoned the men and that he should be judged for this. Eventually, one of Custer's officers, a man named Frederick Frederick Benteen, who we are going to hear a lot about later, admitted to being the author, and that would start a feud that never ended and would have massive consequences later on in this episode. So in the end, all we have is Custer's report. He said that he retreated because he had most likely vastly overestimated the American Indian force opposing him, and he retreated prematurely. That's not what he said in his report, but based on what he does say, that's what we can surmise. So after the Battle of the Washita River, there's a bit of a lull. This is in 19... 19, jeez. 1868, and there's a bit of a lull that lasts up until the early 1870s. There might be some small-scale skirmishes and raids, but there's nothing large-scale. No, no battles that are noteworthy or things of that nature, as far as I'm aware. Custer spent the rest of the winter of 68 roaming the plains, not really fighting any battles, actually talking peacefully with different tribes. And he took some expeditions to the Cheyenne and other tribes. And when he went on these expeditions, he took some of the captives that he had taken from the Washita tribe along with him as his guides. One of the three that he took with him often was a young woman named Monaseta. Think is how you say it. Mo na se ta. There's dashes in her name in the book that I read, so. <laughs> anyway. Now, according to Cheyenne oral history, and there are some reports from officers like Frederick Benteen, who I should point out hated Custer. Custer had an affair with Mona Seta and was married to her in the eyes of the Cheyenne. Now the oral history of the Cheyenne even goes so far as to claim that Custer was the father of Mona Seta's baby. This is a probable myth that may have its basis in fact. It's hard to say. But for sure, it was something that the Cheyenne talked about with other American Indian tribes, and then it got into more of the mainstream, and then it got into mainstream white culture, and eventually into history and became accepted history. You'll see lots of sources that just say she had his baby. And I'm not sure that I buy it, and neither do some other you know, heavier hitters like Stephen Ambrose, who calls it a myth. So for one thing, Custer is a prolific diarist who wanted to tell the world every detail of his life, but he doesn't mention that he's sleeping with Mona Seta. He praises her looks and he talks about her in, in a glowing fashion, but it doesn't seem romantic or sexual in my mind. Could have been just skirting the issue, but 
I don't know. Seems like if a customer is going to tell you something, he just straight up tell you. Yeah. Hitting that. Because that's how they talked in 1868. Anyway. The other thing is Monaceta's only confirmed baby, as far as I can tell, was born only two months after she met Custer. Now, the Cheyenne legend claims that there was a second baby, but and, and the timelines would have matched up. But there is speculation within the historical community that Custer was likely sterile due to a venereal disease contracted at West Point. And one of the reasons behind this is the fact that despite his fairly long and passionate marriage to his wife and their desire for kids, they were never able to have any. There could be other reasons for that, but there is evidence to support the fact that he may have been shooting blanks. Now, if there was a second baby, historians believe that it was most likely Custer's brother, Tom, who was the father. Again, this is all hearsay, assuming that there's even a baby to be fathered. Tom was in the army and served it served under Custer often, so it's not out of the realm of possibility that he could be the one sleeping with Monaceta. Incidentally, uh, Tom Custer was an extremely brave man, and he's the only person in the Civil War to win the Medal of Honor twice. And while winning the second Medal of Honor, he got shot directly in the face, hit him in the cheek, and came out behind his ear. Stayed in the battle, and was rewarded appropriately. I'm not convinced it was a fair... I'm not convinced that Custer was completely faithful to Libby. There's evidence to support affairs. But this Monaceta thing, I'm not convinced. It's... It's circumstantial at best. I don't believe it outright, but I could be convinced if someone was giving give me some good sources. But so far, I haven't run across that. So, there was a lull in the fighting. Crazy Horse was not doing much fighting during this lull period. At least he wasn't fighting the white man. But in 1870, he did lead an expedition against the Shoshone. The Shoshone whipped the Ogallala. And Crazy Horse in what was the start of a series of tragedies for him, lost his lifelong best friend. In this war against the Shoshone's hump, was killed. And when I say lifelong best friend, I mean different than any best friend you probably have. The Sioux had their, was it a cola, I think it was called, from the other episode? Hump and Crazy Horse were basically inseparable from the time they were young children to the time that Hump was killed probably in his late 20s would be my guess. And Crazy Horse was devastated. He powered through, engaged the Shonies, engaged the Crow at this time, but generally during this time period, Crazy Horse was spending most of his time fighting other American Indians, not any white men. Custer also bored on the plains. If he wasn't fighting, he was just bored out of his tree, so there's not really much to talk about with Custer in this lull, but there is a pretty major incident with Crazy Horse. He got himself into some pretty big trouble. So, earlier in his life, Crazy Horse had fallen in love with a woman named Black Buffalo Woman. She, even though, I don't know the whole story, 
because I didn't really dig into it in the Crazy Horse episode, and I didn't have time to dig into this episode, but she had married someone named No Water. Is it Warrior named No Water? Despite the fact that she did have feelings for Crazy Horse, they did not end up together. Now, Crazy Horse, maybe because Hump was killed, or maybe he just decided it was time, he made up a story about a war party chasing after the crow, but in actuality, 1871, Crazy Horse and Black Buffalo Woman had decided to run away together. No water chased after them. Now, in the Sioux culture, as as bad as this sounds, because women are not property, Crazy Horse had legal ways to go about becoming the husband of Black Buffalo Woman. He could have paid No Water, and then Black Buffalo Woman and him could have been together. Black Buffalo Woman in Sioux culture could have legally divorced her husband and chosen to marry Crazy Horse, but for whatever reason, they decided to go the quote-unquote illegal route and run away together. And No Water chased after them and found them a couple days later. No Water burst into the teepee... Teepee horse. I'm losing my mind. Burst into the teepee, and when he did, Crazy Horse reached for a knife, but No Water shot him in the face. Yeah, he had a revolver that he borrowed from a friend and blasted Crazy Horse. Fortunately, No Water was not the best shot. The bullet from the revolver followed the line of Crazy Horse's teeth and fractured his jaw but did not kill him, although No Water definitely believed when he left the teepee that he killed Crazy Horse and he told people so. So I just killed him. Now, long story short, because I do not have time to get into it all, there was a huge feud between different factions of the Ogallala. There was almost a war, but eventually cooler heads prevailed and peace was restored. Crazy Horse did not get to marry Black Buffalo Woman, and he also was stripped of his title as a shirt wearer because he had put his own needs above that of the tribe. He was being selfish, and he broke the vow that he had taken when he became a shirt wearer, so they stripped him of his rank, so to speak. To add insult to injury, shortly after this incident happened, and shortly after Crazy Horse recovered from being shot in the face, he got the devastating news that his younger brother, Little Hawk, was killed by some white miners. So, it was it was a really rough time to be Crazy Horse. He got some really bad news, lost out on the supposed love of his life, and there is evidence to support that he was spiraling into a depression. So that was 1868 to 1872. Now, during that same time period, there was some good things that happened for Crazy Horse. For example, he formed a close friendship with Sitting Bull. Now, Sitting Bull is a major player in this episodes, so to speak, and I could have spent a lot of time, I could have done a Custer episode, a Crazy Horse episode, and a Sitting Bull episode, but I decided not to do that, although I might do one in the future just for fun. But Sitting Bull, I always had this picture of Sitting Bull being this chieftain. That is not the case. He was not a chief, he was not a war leader, but he was an influential advisor to everyone. So much so, he was so influential that the, the war from 1872 to 1877 is sometimes called Sitting Bull's War. In a book that I was reading, he was described as the Ben Franklin of the Sioux. 
He was not ever the president, so to speak. He was not ever a general, but he just advised everybody and did it well. Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse came into contact because Crazy Horse spent more and more time in the north with the Hunk Pampa Sioux. Sitting Bull was part of that tribe. And they were brought together by their mutual desire to resist the white at all the whites at all cost. Sitting Bull had no desire to surrender and live on a reservation. Crazy Horse had vowed to his father that he would always resist the white man and fight them no matter what. Also, during this time period in 1872, Crazy Horse got married. He married a woman named Black Shawl. Now, this was probably more of an arranged marriage set up by his very good friend He-Dog because, yeah, Crazy Horse was probably pretty depressed. He had lost Hump. He had lost Little Hawk. Black Buffalo Woman would never be his wife. He was maybe even dangerously depressed and finding ways to... Well, it wouldn't have been that hard for him to go into battle and not survive on purpose. Let's put it that way. So his friends thought maybe a wife would cheer him up and hopefully, in the future, children and bring him out of his depression. And honestly, it may have worked because it seemed to have been a happy marriage. And for a time, we're going to get to more tragedy, but for a time, Crazy Horse had at least a daughter and he seemed to have delighted in being a father although sources are scarce in how he actually dealt with fatherhood. Okay, back to Custer. March of 1873, Custer and the 7th Cavalry are starting another, another expedition. They have gathered in Memphis, and they are starting their journey north. Custer traveled with his usual entourage, including his brother Tom, and they headed for Fort Abraham Lincoln, which is near Bismarck, North Dakota. And primary goal is to protect the surveyors that are working for the Northern Pacific Railroad. Custer was just one small part of a force that was sent out by Generals Sheridan and Sherman. And overall charge was given to Colonel David S. Stanley. Now, I said earlier that I was going to get to other parts of Custer's life that would just, I just, I like the guy. I can't help it. hate some of the things that he did, but... It is no surprise to me that most people that came into Custer, came into contact with Custer, seem to really like him, love him, even adore him. So, just an example of Custer's personality. During the march with Colonel Stanley, they both, Colonel Stanley and Custer, both wrote letters to their respective wives at the same time. Now, on June 26th, they were at camp on the Hart River, and they were delayed. Now, Stanley said that they were laid over on account of high water. Custer said that they were laid over on account of some railroad engineers. That's not that big of a deal. Those two things don't seem to give much insight into Custer's personality. But then it continues. Stanley said in his letter that it had rained four days out of six, sometimes in torrents, and that it was miserable. So sounds like a horrible time to be marching. <laughs> Custer, talking about the same march, said in his letter, quote, Our march has been perfectly delightful thus far. <laughs> the man had a zest for life that is, I don't think, paralleled by anybody else in American history. 
you got to give him credit where credit is due. That guy found joy in living his life on the plains. Even when other people found it the most miserable experience ever. And I just can't help it. it. He seems like a guy that I would enjoy being around. Minus the racism and killing of children and women. <laughs> now, this expedition in the summer of 1873 is kind of important. Because this is the first time that Crazy Horse saw Custer. Custer probably did not see Crazy Horse, but Crazy Horse definitely saw him. The expedition was well inside Sioux territory, and Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull were well aware of this expedition. Custer was near the mouth of the Tongue River, which is by present-day Miles City, Montana, and he had halted his column because he was getting a little far ahead, and he wanted the rest of the troopers to catch up. So, he took a nap. And while he was napping, Crazy Horse and some other warriors had crawled to a nearby bluff and looked down on Custer and his men, determining whether or not they could set up an ambush, despite being outnumbered. And Crazy Horse got a good look at Custer. So, the Sioux tried the old technique of sending out decoys. And at first, Custer and about 20 men pursued the decoys, but Custer seemed to have sniffed on an ambush and was considering whether or not to intentionally ride into it and try to win a battle or to reassess and, and leave. The decision was taken out of his hands because in the trees that he was being led towards, there was some Cheyenne who had been at the Washita River, and they recognized Custer, and they hated Custer because, of course, in their mind and in others, he had murdered their wives and children. Not necessarily a charge totally out of left field. So they recognized Custer and they charged, spoiling the ambush. And Custer rapidly retreated and then set up a skirmish line of cavalrymen who fired into the advancing warriors, which scattered them. So not much of a battle, more of just a skirmish, but could have gone very poorly for Custer. And in reality, the Cheyenne were trying to kill him in repayment, but they probably maybe even saved his life by preventing the ambush. Now we get to one of the more important expeditions of Custer's life. Now, in 1868, a little bit of background. So the 1873 expedition has ended. Custer and Stanley go back to their base of operations and we move on to a different expedition. 1868, the Black Hills, which we had talked about in an earlier episode, were promised to the Sioux forever. However, 1873, the U.S. was in the middle of an economic panic, and there was rumor that there were valuable minerals in the Black Hills, especially gold and lots of it. And white Americans started to demand that the government open up the Black Hills. Treaty be damned. Who cares? And 1874, General Sheridan sent a column of troops into the Black Hills, which was a direct violation of the treaty, and in the process, he starts a war. He claimed that the Sioux were not even living up to their end of the treaty, a claim that was greatly exaggerated, and may have even been a complete lie, but one way or the other, he used that as the justification for violating the treaty on their end. 
Custer and the 7th Cavalry again are leading a strong column into the Black Hills. A monotonous march, not much happening, but Custer loved it once again. He was hunting, he was cataloging new plants and animals that he had seen. He was having a grand time. Now, Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse may have been completely unaware of this expedition into the Black Hills at the time. Other Sioux that lived in the Dakotas were aware, but Custer was too strong to attack and there was no trouble from American Indians. July 27, they camped near present-day Custer, South Dakota, and they got word from miners that they had brought along that gold had been found. Custer sent a man through hostile territory to Fort Laramie to telegraph the news back east, and soon all of the United States was reading about gold in the Black Hills in the newspapers. Which, of course, started a gold rush. Now, why did the Sioux not resist Custer this particular time? Well, it could be he just didn't go west far enough. They had stopped in South Dakota, and a lot of the Sioux were farther west in the Montanas. So it was sacred ground, but it was not used by the Sioux very often anymore, like it had been in the past. Now, there's another reason that it could have been an uncontested march for Custer. And again, it comes down to another tragedy for Crazy Horse. Crazy Horse had led a raid against the Crow. And when he returned, his father sadly told him that his daughter had contracted cholera and died. Which, man, that guy had just had a rough couple of years. He makes me sad to think about, like, I got kids. Whew. Uh, and to not be there, that's the other thing. Like, he comes back and just hit with his freaking rail, just locomotive of grief. Can't imagine it. So, Crazy Horse may have not been in any physical or emotional place to wage war. That could have been one of the reasons that Custer was uncontested. And Crazy Horse, deep in mourning, of course, his personality didn't really change, but it did intensify. He basically became, not mute, but he almost refused to speak in public. He was extremely quiet. Like he was... We talked about how his personality was very reserved, but with all the tragedies that he endured, he really drew into himself. He became intense, but quiet. But also more reckless in battle. When he went into battle, his friends suspected that he was actually hoping for death. But he was never wounded. He still had strong medicine. No matter how reckless he got, nothing touched him. So... Over the next year and a half, there was no large-scale contesting of the Black Hills and the gold rush. However, and again, this is speculative, but over the next year and a half, Crazy Horse would often leave his village for weeks at a time, and nobody knew where he went or what he did. But in that same time period, there were dozens of white miners found dead in the Black Hills with an arrow stuck in the ground near the dead body. And all of them, all of them were unscalped. And you remember, with his vision, Crazy Horse was told never to take anything, including scalps. So he might have been on a one-man search-and-destroy mission. The evidence definitely is circumstantial, but somewhat compelling. And that's where I have to end part A. These are going to be long episodes, even split in half, 
combining them would have been a horrible idea. So I'm going to end part A right here. Part B, I'm releasing at the same time. And it's basically a continuation of this episode. So don't leave. Keep listening. Head over to my page. Listen to part B. And I will continue right here where I left off.